from LPM. Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. Hi, I'm Kyla. And this is Jay. And you're listening to Strange Fruit by Louisville Public Media. Welcome back to listeners. Uh, so you all know on our show we talk about everything uh, pop culture, politics, social justice. But of course, my most favorite thing to talk about is pop culture. Uh, and especially, um, I'm excited for today's show because, Doc, um, there's been a lot of talk and attention lately, and I'm very happy about it, about diversity and representation in Hollywood. So I know I just saw today that Shonda Rhimes has eight new projects that she's doing for Netflix. We've had the blockbuster hit Black Panther. I'm excited about this new movie, Crazy Rich Asians, which is like the first <laughs> mainstream movie. And Kojin, our, uh, our engineer who's Asian, is like, yeah, right. So but it's the first, believe it or not, y'all, it's the first mainstream movie with Asian folk at the center since Joy Luck Club in 93. Oh, wow. Right? And uh, you made me watch Joy Luck Club. I love you know, Joy it Luck actually Club. was really, really good. But it's since like, we were 13, right? And yeah. now we're not 13 anymore, you know? So, <laughs> but so there's been a lot of discussions about people of color in Hollywood, about trans representations, about should cis actors play trans roles and so i'm really excited i was really excited to come across um this this series um called every single word every single word um is based on tumblr and it's a project that literally uh seeks to put into a short video every single word spoken by a person of color in a mainstream film and so please welcome to the show dear listeners he's a writer performer and video maker um, and the creator of Every Single Word, Dylan Marin. Marin, Dylan Marin. Hey, Dylan. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Sorry, I got the wrong. Dylan Marin. Uh, we are we are no, wonderful. Um, and so, like I said, I was as, as I mentioned, I love pop culture. Super excited. I love TVs, movies. Um, I've talked about on our show about how I see the, the significance of television and movies and framing popular ideas and you know even social and political policy. So, talk a bit for our listeners about tell our listeners rather what. Um, every single word seeks to do and how you came to create this concept? Well, um, I came to create the concept just because at the time um, and kind of throughout my childhood, I was uh, brown. Well, I am brown, (laughs) but I still was then uh, brown and, um, you know, queer kid trying to break into the entertainment industry. And I think what... Um, I was up against was being told, you know, we think you're really talented. We love what you do, but it's unlikely that you're going to get work. I was told this by a few people and hearing that just didn't make sense in my mind. And so over time, as I got older, I I came to understand that there was um, a representation threshold, right? There was a representation problem. And the fact was that universal stories were being told but not using um, bodies that reflected universal stories. Universal stories are told by default with white bodies. So that is a more academic way of saying that there is a representation problem in Hollywood. I wanted to present that problem not necessarily um, through a vlog where I might have been a little, uh, you know, I think I would have I would have been a little fired up. It would have been emotional, which yeah. emotions are definitely not a problem, and they fuel a lot of great art. But I wanted to find a way to present it more empirically. Um, I wanted to kind of have a more fact-based approach to it, to kind of just lay it out for people to see. And so I just 
basically came up with the idea of editing down popular movies to only the words spoken by people of color as a way to show people the problem right there. What does it look like when you edit down a popular movie to only the words spoken by people of color? What are the types of characters you see? Do they have a first and last name? Do they even have a first name? Are they just given the name of their job, right? And so I wanted to, you know, it's funny, a lot of people told me that they liked the series initially because they thought it was funny. And that's fine if that brings more people to the table for conversation, right? If if that is uh, tipping more people off to this issue, then I'm happy if they found this thing that I don't find funny if they found it funny. I mean, if anything, I think that's also what it was designed to do, right? It was designed to be entertaining. It was designed to be shareable. It's designed to be bite-sized because, sadly, these these compilations are um, very, very short. So I wanted to find an accessible way to talk about this very complex problem. Yeah, I mean, I really find it daunting when I was listening to some of the movies that were spliced and diced, uh, in particular the Harry Potter one, and it really doesn't have hardly any dialogue with people of color in it whatsoever. And it's this beloved series that somehow, you know, begs the question, do people of color not enjoy wizardry and (laughs) magic and all of these things. Yeah, and that's entirely not true because I (laughs) think it's like there's there's a fandom erasure that happens too when Mm -hmm. you have a lack of representation in film is is there is there is the false assumption like, oh, this is a white person thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. it's not. It's it's it is Harry Potter is a is a beautiful, beautiful story that has nothing to do with race. Do you know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. it is it is about it's if we want to boil it down to something far simpler than it is it's a coming of age story right it's a coming of age story over the course of seven books um and so yeah it's it's that was i think that was driving it too because the point was not that i hated these movies that I was editing down, it was quite the opposite. It's the fact that I love these movies. And why do these movies that I love, that we all love, why are they so skewed towards one type of person? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. And, 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 and there are folks, especially when it comes to, it seems like, child, the fandom gets really buck when it comes to, like, sci-fi movies, i.e. Harry mm-hmm. Potter, i.e. Super. They're like, oh, my God, that character is, is white. It's like that character is a gnome. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and so I love that yeah. on your, you, you have a post on on your Tumblr where you, were, you referenced Tim Burton, right, Doc, who did, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, like, uh, Nightmare Before Beatles, Christmas. Yeah, all those like, kind mm-hmm. of fantastical movies. And, and you kind of make, and, and so I appreciate, I want to say I appreciate um, your commentary about how people oftentimes discover your work, for example, our podcast, for example, through humor. We, we do try to mm-hmm. in, to infuse humor in talking mm-hmm. about heavy issues because we recognize that for people who don't necessarily engage issues of social justice or intersectionality, these things can be heavy. They can be intimidating. So sometimes the, the, the laughing effect is what is what gets them there and keeps them there. Oh, so, so, But I do like you talk about Tim Burton and you say, so the Tim Burton's logic, right? What is realistic? A corpse bride, a man with scissors for hands, a dead <laughs> couple that haunts a house, but what's unrealistic is people of color in any of these situations, right? So again, you can mm-hmm. have a superhero, you can have some kind yeah. of zombie, but they can't be black, like you know, you know, like mm-hmm. in, in a fantastical world. I mean, so so it really is. Um, there is like kind yeah. of this disconnect between like how are black people are not allowed to be wizards and witches and and ghosts and goblins and superheroes when it's all yeah. fantasy and make believe, and and so um. I do appreciate that. Now I want to sh- share with our listeners, um, for example, something that they would see on your site. 
there's a director named Nancy Myers. Some folks might mm-hmm. recognize some of the movies that Nancy Myers did. The pla- the Parent Trap, uh, something's got to give. Uh, it's mm-hmm. complicated, but so you take mm-hmm. twelve hours and forty three minutes of Nancy Myers directed movies. Of those mm-hmm. twelve hours, POC folk uh, are in five. They speak in five minutes and twenty three seconds of those mm-hmm. entire oh twelve God. hours. You point out that there's in total of all these movies that there are thirty POC characters. 20 of those POC characters have no name. So as you mentioned, like, mm-hmm. maid, uh, clerk, mm-hmm. uh, best mm-hmm. friend. Like, okay. There's no They're kind of name like from the, the character. Exactly. Yeah. And even of, of those uh, 30 characters, 19 of them are in service industry or assistant roles, right? So they're probably making your yeah. coffee or there. And I even remember, too, that there was one character that was, uh, I think the character, the... the um, the Mel Gibson's door operator in What Women Want, played by Loretta Devine, um, it, her her title is Flo the Door Woman. <laughs> you know, oh like, my gosh. and it's <laughs> okay. so like it's telling about. Well, yes, she has a name, but um, her her you know her vocational job is relevant to this story. Yeah, her you know? title is longer than her name. She has a first name, but mm-hmm. she has a three name yeah. title, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And it makes people of color synonymous with the kind of work and labor they Absolutely, perform. Yeah. That that mm-hmm. is where their worth resides, right? Is something yeah, that's tied yeah. to their occupation, which is yeah. also ridiculous. Yeah, right? yeah. So how so do you literally watch so so talk about the process of how you could do you have a team of folk or do you literally be like, let me go to Blockbuster. Well, I guess now it's Netflix. I'm talking about <laughs> yeah, Like, let me go to Netflix. 1997. Exactly, right? <laughs> and be like, okay, I'm going to watch all... Titanic and I got my fun dip. Exactly, um, yeah. So how do you... Yeah. What's your process? Yeah. Yeah, so the process was watching movies uh, and I was doing it alone. It, it's just also funny to talk about because I have to say I have not... You know, I, I stopped doing the series back in 2016. So we're like... Uh, over we're we're over two years out from it so it's like a nice rehashing to to think about what i did but yeah i i watched the movies edited them down um did a fair amount of research myself you know wanting to make sure like how certain background characters identified which was somewhat complicated because sometimes there isn't intense biographical information on a an actor who had two spoken lines in a movie. Um, and, and yeah, so, so, and then I kind of use that to meaning not use that to get to my next projects, but I also wanted to kind of evolve the projects I was working on. I, I, I think I realized in making the project, I reminded myself, you know, don't lose sight of what you're doing this for. Like what I was doing this for was that I wanted to find a creative way to talk about a problem that I was experiencing firsthand and talk about the problem was so much bigger than me. It's also so much bigger than um, my frustration of not getting a job. It was, it was, it was bigger than that. And I wanted to make sure that I was also making other work. I didn't want to spend my entire life editing down popular movies, you know, going to the proverbial blockbuster and, and, and renting a movie. <laughs> what was the general response? What was some of the most startling or most affirming response to the series? Like, how did people react? Like, the kind of really, really out there, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with anything kind of commentary? You're playing or, the race card. Yeah, yeah or yeah. people yeah. who are really, really affirming. What was the response generally from people who listen and you watch know, the series? It, it was um, 
it was pretty positive. I'd, I'd, I have to say, like, I mean, the series lived on YouTube. So there were, of course, all the comments that you would imagine, but um, my face wasn't on it. So it wasn't directed at me. It was just directed at the general notion of caring about this issue. Um, in terms of the positive, I think the, the, what, what the, the feedback that meant the most to me was hearing people who were like, wow, I had no idea this was a problem. Thank you for showing it. Right. And, and that's what I aimed to do. I think that this wasn't, I didn't want to just be getting the affirmation of the people who already knew this was a problem. I wanted to call more people to the table. I wanted to start a conversation with it. Um, and then there were, of course, the, um, kind of, uh, there was the pushback. There was, there were the people saying like, well, why care about movies and you're, you're, um, you're dedicating your time to something that doesn't really matter. People are dying in the streets and there's nothing to argue with that. I am talking about film and yes, there are people dying and, and there are, so many other elements that contribute to racism and bigotry. Film is just one of them, but film and media shapes the way we understand the world and it shapes the way we understand ourselves. So did I ever think that my series alone was going to single-handedly contribute to the eradication of racism in the world? <laughs> no, I, I, I wanted to illuminate one facet of what, racism and structural racism can look like. Yeah. And, you, and you've had support from a lot of folks. I mean, Kerry Washington uh, retweeted you, yeah. which that which had to be really cool. Uh, yeah, and Kerry Washington, a bunch of people were, were really, really supportive. Absolutely. There's, there's one thing in particular that I saw on your Tumblr that I really, I, I think that you wrote it, but it really stood out to me, and that was that someone posed a question about if they are a writer of TV shows or movies and they say that, you know, they're white or they're cis or they're straight and they, they feel this kind of struggle, like, well, what if I get it wrong? Like, what what if I, mm-hmm. you know, what I, it's not my space to write about African-Americans because I'm not African-American. And so mm-hmm. you talk about two types of ways that people can write people of color. And I guess by extension, mm-hmm. it would be gay folk and trans folk, et cetera. And that's one intentionally, which is to write stories about black people, right? So you think about mm-hmm. Lackawanna, Lackawanna blues or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, black narratives or queer narratives. Mm-hmm. And then number two is unintentionally, right? Talk a bit more mm-hmm. about the, the difference between those two and how folks presume that uh, they, they only think about number one, they don't think very much about unintentionally and how those really can be expanded. Talk a bit about that, please. Yeah, so I see it as twofold, right? Like you can, please, by all means, write stories that have nothing to do with race, but please know in the casting process, you should be open to, um, you know, those those universal stories being played by universal bodies, which is to say, if you are writing about a dentist who has a midlife crisis, that doesn't have to be a white guy, right? That could be um, a Puerto Rican woman who is a dentist and she's just having a midlife crisis. So she buys a car and goes on a road trip. There's nothing inherently white about that story. You know what I mean? We're told that there is something inherently white because we are told that to cast a Puerto Rican woman in a role, it must be a Puerto Rican character who talks about being from Puerto Rico. and, And that's just not true. Now, the flip side is um, is movies like uh, at the time there was a movie Tangerine yes. um, that was a great example of this. Sean Baker 
whose leads were trans black women and using um, their experiences, their input to shape the script, right? He wasn't just writing about this. He's a, you know, cis white guy and and he's writing about an experience beyond himself. So he brought additional people in to make sure that the story was, um, you know, um, the story was reflective of the experiences that he was aiming to put on screen. I just saw a movie the other day, um, Night Comes On, with an amazing, amazing actor named Dominique Fishback. And it's the story of this woman who um, who's basically trying to uh, – well, it's, I don't want to give anything away. It's, it's a wonderful story okay. about these two black sisters um, from Philadelphia and written and directed by a white – director and um but the the director also made sure to bring on a co-writer with her who is a woman a black woman who experienced um who experienced the uh um the foster care system you know and and so it's like no one is saying you can't do this it's saying if you want to tell other people's stories make sure you're involving those people uh, in in the story making process, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And or if you want to not make a movie or film or story about identities at all, um, just know that then that means that doesn't just mean white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no. Are there any things, Dylan, like that you've seen recently, which are like, yes, this is what I'm talking about. This is what inclusivity looks like when it comes to narratives of people of color whether that is characters or anything like that whether it's a netflix series a web series Mm -hmm. is there any programming right now that you're enjoying because it's universal and at the same time inclusive to people of color stories and you know narratives yeah i mean this is an obvious example but i really just absolutely love Issa Rae and I love what she's doing with Insecure, I think. But, but, and I think she is aiming to tell stories that she hasn't really seen a lot on television. Are they universal? Absolutely. That's what makes it a good show. But, but she's also writing to a specific experience for specific people and really making an incredible show in the process. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think these are peripheral characters, so kind of take this with a grain of salt, but I was pleased to see in The Handmaid's Tale that, um, you know, basically the the main character's comrade and her husband, who totally could have been cast as white by default, were not. Um, it's um, her husband is, you know, black and, and her best friend who spoiler alert escaped is, <laughs> um, is, is also black. And that's Samira Wiley. Yeah. Um, I think orange, the new black does a great job of using diverse, you know, using a variety of backgrounds to tell a variety yeah. of stories that that's not race blind casting, yeah. right? Yeah. That's like those characters are intentionally, um, tied to and imbued with the stories of their racial background, Absolutely. which is important to the story. So, um, yeah, I, I, and there are others, of course. Yeah, well, like, I, I would say time. I loved Once Upon a Time. That was that ABC series, you know, oh, which, oh, which yeah. was, it, it, you know, for example, like 
like Prince, that wasn't really Prince Charming, but a lot of care, a lot of fairy tale characters throughout history. Some of them were black, right? Like mm-hmm. Ursula was black, and even though I know some people say that Ursula was black in in Little Mermaid, you know, even though she was purple, <laughs> yeah. but but like Ursula in, in in the show was cast as a black woman. There were other just kind of inconsequential fairy tale characters that happened to be black, and it was not part and parcel to the storyline. It was just like, okay, this is a world of make believe. Uh, some people mm-hmm. are Asian, some are black, some are queer, and I think that was brilliant. Before we let you go, Dylan, I want to talk a bit about one of your latest projects, uh, which I think is a mm-hmm. hoot is a riot it's your podcast <laughs> and it's called conversations with people who hate me listeners i want to let y'all hear just a little bit of uh sort of like a trailer this is from youtube uh it's dylan's podcast but take a listen listeners hi is this josh yeah it's josh so back in january you wrote you are the most pathetic human being i have ever seen on the internet in my entire life josh what inspired you to write that message Hi, I'm Dylan Marin, and I'm starting a new podcast called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. It's an interview series where I get to know some of the people behind the negative and hateful messages I've received on the internet. You wrote to me, you're a moron, you're the reason this country is dividing itself, all of your videos are merely opinion, and an awful opinion, I must say. So, so listeners, that's just a little preview uh, of, uh, tell us, that that sounds fascinating, tell us uh, what that podcast uh, what, just talk to him, talk about it, please. I mean, yeah, where do yeah. we go from there? <laughs> so every, every single word is is part of the story of why I made that podcast, right? Every single word sparked a two-year period where I really wanted to find a way to talk about um, social issues um, from my vantage point, and I wanted to find accessible ways to talk about them on the Internet. Every single word is a great example of that. I went on to make an interview series called Sitting in Bathrooms with Trans People as a way to kind of confront and discuss the transphobic bathroom laws that were coming out of North Carolina and were creeping up around the country. And I wanted to humanize the very folks at the center of this issue by making an interview series where I did exactly what the title suggests. I sat with my trans friends in bathrooms and talked to them about mundane things about their lives to kind of you know, give people a visual of what it actually looks like for a uh, a quote unquote feared trans person to be in in the spots where they were being legislated. Um, and then I guess the really popular project I did after that is: Are you guys familiar with those unboxing videos where like YouTubers open up the latest electronic gadgets and Xboxes and phones? You know those. Okay. Right? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So I satirized those by um, unboxing intangible ideologies instead, like uh, police brutality, masculinity, the mistreatment of Native Americans. And all of these videos became very popular. Um, I was unapologetically talking about highlighting um, very, to me, very important social issues and coming from my vantage point. And because this is the internet, and when you get successful on the internet, you not only get a lot of love, but you get a lot of hate. <laughs> and I, I was wondering, like, I don't want to talk to everyone who is sending me hate comments, but I wonder if there are some who are willing to see their negative comments as a starting point for a conversation. Um, and I, so I wanted to start a podcast where I called some of them and had in-depth conversations about who they were, why they wrote what they wrote to me, and um, to see if a conversation was possible. And it turns out, in, in many cases, it was. 
I love it. I love yeah. it. Well, that is and so that's, like, cool. So brave yeah. for you to do. I mean, I would be. Oh. It would be so difficult for you know me. Well, my toes would be oh, hurt. Like know? I would start crying on the, on the air. <laughs> like if people are like, "Jason, you're an idiot," and I would just really start bawling. Yeah, I mean, it, but well, it takes a, a lot of patience and and yeah. humility too to like basically use the negative commentary as a springboard. I mean, I love it. I love what you're trying to do. I love it. Thank you. I mean, I, I think two things I can say to that. One is that I, the truth is I love making the calls. Like the calls make it feel like the world is a beautiful place because people are willing to talk and have a conversation and everyone is so much more of a human on the phone than they are online. Oh, absolutely. And then the other very important thing to say um, that I just want to be clear is, is attached every time I talk about the podcast is that this isn't a prescription for activism, yeah. right? I, I fully understand that some people don't have the energy to do this and some people feel so marginalized that they don't have the energy to give to something like that. So I want to make sure that this podcast is seen as something that I'm comfortable doing, that I have the privilege of doing because I have a platform and it is not, I don't want to suggest like, well, put down the protest sign and pick up a phone, you know, like that's, it, it, it would be foolish of me to think that the world is going to be healed by a single phone call. This is to, to me, the way I see it is like, this is just one way to, um, build a bridge. There are Absolutely. many other ways to build a bridge. Absolutely. You know? Well, your work is one way. Our podcast here is another way. Dylan, thank you so much for yes. making time for us. Listeners, go to Dylan's website, Dylan Marin, M-A-R-R-O-N.com for you. Then you can check out uh, the podcast. You can check out Sitting in Bathroom with Trans Folks. You can get links to uh, every single word and all of Dylan's wonderful work. Dylan, thank you so much for being with us and please take care. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All Thanks, right. Bye-bye. Bye, Dylan. Thanks. Bye. Doc, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Pose and all the delicious food in the series and how (laughs) that food translates to love, dignity, and power for queer families. Let the people know who we are. You're listening to Strange Fruit by Louisville Public Media. This story was a story of a lot of firsts for me. I encountered a lot of weird situations journalistically with this. Even kind of having known that in the back of my head, I was sort of confronted with it. You know what it's like to hear the stories, but what's it like to make them? And what do our reporters learn that doesn't make it into the newscast? I'm still really curious about these questions, and so I would imagine readers and listeners are too. That's what you'll get on Recut, a behind-the-news podcast from WFPL, every Tuesday and Thursday at Recut.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Strange Fruit by Louisville Public Media. So, Doc, um, August is um, national. There's a couple different foods that are celebrated this month. Okay. Well, one is a fish and a food. But so August, if you don't know, is National Catfish Month. Ugh. Okay. It's, I, I know, right? It's also National Goat Cheese Month. Is that mm, good? You like goat cheese? Yum, yes. yum, yum. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's National Sandwich Month. I love sandwiches. What's your favorite sandwich? Do you have a favorite? My favorite sandwich would have I know to what be... you're going to say. We're going to say tuna, tuna melt. No, yeah. what, well, no, he has tuna melt. <laughs> okay. I love tuna melt. I love a club sandwich, a good old-fashioned club sandwich with uh, extra <laughs> onion and mayo. It's also National Panini Month. I love panini. Okay, you, especially Panera. Yeah. It's also <laughs> National you, Peach Month. Do you like peaches? I do like peaches, yes. but I like peaches and cottage cheese. Oh, really? That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I just like regular old peaches, not no peach cobbler. You know, I, don't like I mean, peaches. I don't want peach cobbler. I'm saying, like, you take some peaches. Yeah, and you dip it in the cottage cheese. And like have cottage cheese. Yeah, okay. it's like a snack. Okay, well, good. Oh so all that to say, listeners, uh, you know, I think about food all the time. Doc, I said at your house a couple of days ago, you made a delicious dinner. I did. And if you remember what I said to you, I said, cooking is your way to show people the what? 
That you love them. That you love them, right? Yeah. And so, uh, it, so appropriately enough, uh, there's a really wonderful think piece that was on Eater.com that ran in July that talked about our favorite show, Pose, and the way in which food plays a part as kind of as a sub-character in the show. The piece is called, in, F- in FX's Pose, Food Represents Love, Dignity, and the Power of Family. So please welcome the author of that piece, uh, Bonnie Amore. Bonnie, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad you could be with us. So as we mentioned, uh, I mentioned it was it's food month for all those different foods. We also love <laughs> polls like you do. But talk a bit about uh, the piece that you wrote and how you also saw food sort of as its own character uh, in that show and what you think it represents about chosen family and people of color and queer folk. Mm-hmm. Well, food um, throughout, I feel like the season, this first season of Pose was um, continually introduced to us. Subtly, you know, um, where, you know, Janet Mock talk, talks about how this show is an unconventional family drama, and I put that in there, too, because, I mean, you know, the way that it's kind of communicated in the media is just, like, this queer and trans, like, black and brown thing. Like, that's kind of separate from other facets of our lifestyles that every human experiences, Right. So food in the show kind of brings back the dignity and the humanity of these people because we see them go through all this, like, maligning from society, you know, constantly. Um, So when we see them kind of sit down and, and, you know, form these connections with each other through food, it's a way of kind of reclaiming that spot also on TV that's like we're a family too. Like, cancel Roseanne, we have Pose, yes. you know, uh, I f- and I feel that the episode, the Christmas one, was very much like an, an alternate um, a Christmas story, that old movie, um, because they ended up at the Chinese place and everything <laughs> at the end of the, the spot. And so, I, I don't know, for me, that really sends, like, it, it's, it sends it home that it's um, another kind of family, Absolutely. and who also does normal stuff like eat and um, form connections through that. So that's something that historically this community has been doing, but it hasn't really been communicated, uh, you know, through media. Yeah, no, I mean, I really loved your piece, Bonnie. I mean, talking about how the kitchens in the show serve as like a safe space, how food is, and the exchange of food, whether it's Electra buying Blanca the first meal yes. and becoming her mother, or whether it's uh, Blanca's sister finally giving her the cookbook, the cookbook yeah. from her mommy, you know, and her mommy's recipes. I do, I think that, um, and I actually, before your piece, never saw all of the symbolism with food as love, kitchens as safe spaces, until I read your piece, and I'm like, oh my God, it's all over the place. And it does, it seems like there's a lot of communing happen- happening with the various characters when they sit down to have a meal. I mean, even the the drama fallout with um with uh, the what with was Angel, it? you talking about No, with about? the the drug dealer. Oh, with with Lil Poppy. With Lil, Lil Poppy. Poppy. I was yeah. yeah, with Lil Poppy centers around the Basically, fact that he was my boyfriend, Lil Poppy. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Lil Poppy. Yeah, <laughs> centers around the fact that right when Blanca kicks him out, it has to do with the fact that he used his money that he made through drug trade to buy the meals, yeah, right? Yeah. And He's like, I wanted to have the money for y'all to buy these meals. So meals are, like, so important. Yeah. And the way in which you uh, point them out in, in your piece is just is beautiful. And I think that it has everything to do uh, with the show. It's almost like a character in and of itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bonnie, you mm-hmm. mentioned, Bonnie, growing up that your grandmother, every time she showed, every time she served you a plate of food, she reminded you, as I told Kyla, that it's made with love. Talk a bit about your own upbringing and the way in which 
food represent because I because I have similar stories. Like my favorite thing too for my family is to host cookouts and and be in the kitchen and, and, and cook. You know, and I, I lament and I complain about it, but I really, really that is my way of showing love to my family. In your own life growing up, was food um an example, a manifestation of love? Of course. Of course. That's how I know what food is, you know? Like that's that's the only experience that I can like see it. Like I don't know, in, in like, uh, luxurious, like, you know, dinner settings, um, eating out and stuff. Like, I don't know, there's certain kind of forms of, like, of restaurant and eat and dining that I just don't feel completely welcomed in. And I don't know, like, because they drummed it into me, all the women in my family, that food was made with love and that it, you know, comes from the home. It's always traditional. My family's from Ecuador. And uh, because, uh, you know, we're all immigrants and I was, you know, the first generation that was born here, um, there was, you know, linguistic barriers and um, all sorts of assimilation of us, you know, trying to, like, kind of make it um, in the United States. And for me, the food was, like, the constant that, like, brought me back to Ecuador, even though I had never been there, you know, and I could taste all of, uh, I don't know, even, like, the beach, you know, where my family is from and, and, like, that fresh, like, citrus that brings out all the flavors and the seafood. Um, these are dishes that are, like, really old, you know. So, I don't know, that connected me to a place and um, and that culture that, that you know, it, there's a kind of love that you have to kind of fight for if you're trying to hold on to certain traditions that are being, like, erased or that might be, like, you know, like, cut out of your family over generations of kind of assimilating into a different culture. So that was the way all of that was just, like, you know, we protected this, and, like, we're passing it down to you whether or not you're going to cook or whatever. Um, so that's what it communicated to me, and it's, you know, not just my grandmother, but all the women in my family. Um, and, like, for me, with the, the show, like, the way that I kind of related to it was that because of me partly being queer and, and, like, just different things that was going on in my life as a teenager and my family's story that was not um, – uh, a great, you know, sitcom kind of family. You know, we struggled with a lot of different things. Um, that my connection to my family was very much, you know, severed uh, when I was a teenager. And I left home when I was 15, and that was, you know, on the streets and getting into all sorts of mess. Um, and I was also vegan when I was a teenager for a while. There was just different things that kind of like, like I just stopped eating Ecuadorian food and I stopped eating food at home. And uh, all of that, just leaving home and, and my relationship to my family kind of ending in a lot of ways. I'm, you know, estranged from a lot of them. Now, uh, you know, getting back into my food traditions and going to Ecuador and traveling and living there um, and treasuring all the food that I, you know, that's how I remember my grandmother. She's not here anymore. So, you know, going back and eating those foods, it, it connects me back to that. You know, it's like you have a right to have this thing, you know, whether, you know, it was taken away due to circumstance. Um, and for me, that's kind of like reclamation over my tradition, my culture. And I don't know, like, because we're queer, we can't have that. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. So, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, this, I think I saw that imposed as well, where it's like, okay, we don't have like the support of like certain people in our lives, but you can, you, you still have that love, like that doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So that's what you can pass down through food. Yeah, no, most definitely. And you say that, you know, offering someone a seat at your table can be so much power, much more powerful than a fancy meal barely touched by blood relatives, right? Who can't stand each other either. And so impose, um, 
it seems as if you're saying that, you know, not only is it just a meal that the characters are sharing with one another, but it's also this kind of reclamation of dignity and tradition and all of the things that might have been severed or lost when they were excommunicated out of their families or out of their particular community. So it's a way for them to find home. That's what, that's how you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, I'll tell you what, um, Bonnie, I, we love Pose just as much as you do. And at least speaking for myself, I love food uh, just as much as the characters in Pose do. <laughs> but before we let you go, Bonnie, I got to ask you, August is National Sandwich Month. What's your favorite sandwich? I'm not a sandwich person. <laughs> okay. Are you, okay, do you like peaches? It's National Peach Month. Do you like peaches? I like peaches. All right, there you go. One out of two ain't bad. Uh, listeners, Bonnie Amore is a queer travel writer whose work has appeared in CNN Travel, Teen Vogue, Bitch Magazine, and in the anthology Outside the XY, Queer, Black, and Brown Masculinity. Bonnie, thanks so much for being with us, and please take care. Thank you both for having me. Yes, bye-bye. Thanks bye, so bye. much, Bonnie. Bye. All right, Doc. Well, another wonderful show. Um, I tell you what, thanks to Bonnie for joining us. Thanks also to Dylan. Two yes. very interesting conversations. Um, I tell you what, Dylan is really doing some really, really cool work around uh, media. And just I tell you what, I don't have the nerve to do what he does, calling up. We don't have that many haters. Like, we've been doing this for, like, this is our sixth calendar year. Yeah. We've gotten a little bit of, I wouldn't even say for us, hate mail. Like, just people who no. probably misunderstand what we do. Yeah, no. Right, who either misunderstand the title. I remember that one time somebody said you call police dogs racist, so you're, like, reverse race. But yeah. would you, you feel like we could call up, <laughs> should we call up people? Like, the people who've given us hate mail, should we call them I up? Know, I, like, I couldn't do it. No. I couldn't do it. No, yeah. no. Because I would be getting out of pocket. They probably would get cussed out or something. <laughs> yeah, that's what I yeah. mean. It takes a lot of patience to kind of sit there and try to use it as a springboard to try and remain, you know, your emotions like polite and, and, and all yeah, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. That would be hard. But so I'll tell you what's not hard, Doc. What's not hard is getting the love and the fan mail from our listeners, which we always love when they give us the shout-outs on Twitter, when they send us mail. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Postcards. We really, really um, enjoy all those aspects. Um, yeah, so I guess we're out of time for this week. I know. Say goodbye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Strange Fruit is produced by Louisville Public Media. Our editor is Laura Ellis. Our engineer is Kojin Tashiro. For more information about Strange Fruit, visit strangefruitpod.org. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at strangefruitpod. The views expressed on Strange Fruit do not reflect those of Louisville Public Media, its staff, or its underwriters. Strange Fruit is produced by me, Kyla Story. And me, Jason Gardner. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Thank you.